and welcome to Off the Record, episode 2.9. Today I have a cool interview with Steve Rennie, but first I wanted to just say that uh, got some cool stuff coming up for this podcast. I'm going to change things up a bit and have a few new discussions. I would love feedback about what you guys have been liking and not liking in recent episodes. Anything you can tell me. I'm trying to figure out which direction this podcast should go that I'll be happy with and you guys will be too. But without further ado, this is Steve Rennie. Steve runs a few different things. He was the manager of the band Incubus for years. Steve runs Renman Music and Business, which is at renmanmb.com. Here he teaches aspiring music business people about the business and the real information you need. We have a good discussion about that, as well as many other things. Check it out. If you're hearing this music, that means that it's time for an ad. This week's episode is brought to you by a project that's near and dear to my heart. It's my book, Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, which is a 725-page guide to the ideas, tools, and techniques you need to know to get your music heard in the music business today. I spent four years researching the book, writing down everything I learned about the music business, working in nearly every aspect of the music business since I was a teenager. It has just been updated for 2015, and there's over 100 pages of new or refreshed content in this year's edition. To learn more, go to getmorefansbook.com. Let's get started with how do you see, you're doing a lot of music business education these days. Everything's changing fast. How do young people stay up with the music business? Well, let's talk about the things that haven't changed first, right? Um, with all the changes that have gone on in the business, the one thing that hasn't changed is it. you have to have great songs at the start of it. And everybody will define what's a great song for them, but if you're looking to do this for a living, um, the yardstick that's most real is whether people love your music enough, think the songs are great enough that they might buy them, or buy a ticket to come and see you play those songs, or, or buy a t-shirt when they get to the gigs, and so forth. So that part of the business hasn't you know, changed much at all. Um, the stuff that has changed is really how we distribute music, you know, um, how, in some ways, how we promote music. There are new things out there like social media that weren't there when I started in the business. But there are other things that are still part of the mix, you know, getting on the radio, um, getting on the TV now in, in whatever form, commercials, background music, whatever is more important today than it was when I started in the business, you know. So... To keep up on the business, um, or any business, not just the music business, you have to be um, conscious of what's going on around you. So if you're in the music business, that means you're reading trades. It means going to music blogs that talk about um, what's going on in the business. I don't know that you need to be a chart follower, but I think if you're going to make music with a thought toward that being a, a career or a living, you need to do what you would do in any other business, which is stay up to speed. And that means read the newspaper, in this case, read blogs, you know, follow the players, because those are the people you're going to be playing with. Very cool. Um, what's the most misunderstood fact in music promotion and marketing today? In marketing, in promotion? Oh, God, if I had to venture a guess, I, I think because social media is 
is so pervasive now that um, that you can just market music online and become a big star. That's not true. You know, you you could be the greatest social media animal in the world and be able to keep an online conversation clever and interesting in all kinds of different ways. But if it doesn't end with somebody humming your song, wanting to come out and see you at a gig, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. What what that social media stuff can do when you have other elements, radio, touring, you know, big time press happening, is that it can provide you with a great window into a conversation with your fans uh, that can help cement that connection that you've made by having your song on the radio or you know, spotlighted on iTunes or, or, or whatever it might be. So you obviously worked with Incubus, who was a very musically adventurous band, especially in a time where music was really melding. Is there any advice you can impart on how you defend a musically adventurous band in a label situation? I get what you're saying. I think in the early days of Incubus, there, when people would ask me to describe the band, um, the first time I was asked to describe the band was when we were signing them, and my boss asked me, what are they like, Steve? And I said, well, they're somewhere between corn meets rage against the machine meets santana meets average white band now i know some of the young kids out there are going to have to go google some of those but if you if you go and google all those names and mix it up that was what incubus felt like the first time uh, i met him and that was you know there that first album there is which I, I could give you points of references to each of those um other artists in there um but in the end of it, that first record was really more the, the um, I don't want to say the hodgepodge, that sounds horrible. That was, that was the challenging marketing thing. As time went on, they just kept writing better and better songs that were more on point. And, and I never had to defend it. You know, we, they got on the radio big time for 15 years, you know. Um, and um, each record had elements that were there on that first record and then things that that they developed along the way and um, so it wasn't a matter of defending them early on it was trying to figure out what was going to work at each step of the game so on the very first record which I referenced um, we didn't even take a single to radio um, we made a video for five grand and today I can't even remember what fucking song it was, right? And it didn't matter. What was clear to me from the very first time I saw the band and very clear to me given my kind of preset reference point for whether I thought a band was worth a shit or not was whether they were a great live band. I was a big concert goer when I was a kid. I had 40 or 50 records in my collection. And, and made sure I went to all those concerts where some of my friends had, you know, a thousand records. I didn't give a shit about a thousand records. I wanted to hear Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, Crosby, Stills, Nash, whatever it might have been, you know. And um, so um, I think for bands that are, that are a little off the beaten path, eventually if you stick out long enough, you will start to define what it is your thing is. I call it what your true north is, the, the, the songs that represent who you really are. And once you've found that, you don't have much splaining to do, as they used to say on Lucy. No splaining, Lucy. So I was thinking a little bit more along the lines of um, 
Well, I do. Do I remember correctly that it was the record after Morning View? Maybe that was like one of the first records recorded in a house or something like that. Like, did you ever have to defend some of those? Well, Morning View was def- Yeah. Okay. Now I know what you. Okay. Morning View. Yeah. yeah. You're okay. Okay. Morning View was recorded in a house, and that was very uncommon in the '90s. Unlike today, if people are listening, like I remember watching that as a audio engineer in the 90s and be like, wow, that's something people don't really do that often. Yeah, and there's a lot of good reasons for it as an audio engineer, which you would appreciate, which is you could go into a studio where everything is dialed in to be a studio, or you could go somewhere that wasn't designed to be a studio and try to turn it into a studio, (laughs) right? And, and, And there would always be the prospect that in trying to turn something that wasn't meant for one purpose into that, that it might not work with the, the morning view thing. Um, it did work. And the way the, the, the things worked inside Sony or for bands on major labels was you had a recording fund, right? And it was going to be X, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And at the end of the day, it didn't much matter where you spent it as long as what came out at the end was great, Right. And so when the whole idea of recording in a house came up, I did have to spend some time working the label guys through that process, right? Because the obvious answer is, why don't we just fucking record in the studio, Ren? And I go, because they want to record in a freaking house, but I mean, and at the time, the truth is they'd been on the road for three years and didn't even have houses when they came back to LA, Okay. Um, so they were going to have to find move in with a friend or something. And it's because before Morning View came out, the band hadn't really put any money uh, in their pocket. You know, the, well, that that came later. You know, and so I had to do a little. I don't say defending, but reassuring the label. And I think it it helped immensely on that front that I had actually worked side by side with all the people at Epic Records. Uh, we had a lot of comfort zone there, and people at a certain level, they knew that, hey, look, if Rennie's saying this is going to be okay, I'm going to go with that. And then, of course, they were checking in, and once the music started coming out, they were going, love it. And it turned out that that particular house um, worked out pretty good as a recording studio. But we also had a top-line producer in there, Scott Litt at the time, and all of that. So it wasn't like the guys were in there jerking off. Yes. (laughs) So you recently had a thing where you came out against uh, traditional audio colleges. Can you tell me a little bit about your opinion on that? Well, I'm going to say I'm going to clarify that a bit. I didn't have an issue with audio colleges, Okay. Uh, I think you're probably referencing, the, you know, some kid had sent me a note who was ready, was getting ready to spend sixty thousand dollars to go to Full Sail University, which started, I presume, as more of an audio engineer college, right? Yes, that's correct. And I will say that there's a big distinction between learning how to audio engineer, which means sitting in front of a desk with six hundred freaking knobs, right? All of which presumably do something that if you twist this dial, something's going to happen, okay? And so that understanding that technology is much different than if I sat you in front of a desk and said, this is the music business desk. And whatever knobs you see on here, 
may or may not even fucking work. Okay. So the, the, <laughs> I like the, that. the, so with audio engineering, that is something that's a skill understanding the music business. I'm going to argue is more art than science and doesn't lend itself is neatly to academia or a kind of trade school approach of here's how we use this John Deere tractor. Don't put your hand there. Okay. Right. Versus the music biz. So that was the, 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 the comment, right? But I will say this even for the audio engineers out there. Having worked with a number of audio engineers or certainly met a lot of audio engineers that work with producers that, that I've met over the years, right? There are plenty of guys that learned how to be engineers. One of them is a good buddy of mine, Brendan O'Brien, who learned by just sitting next to a producer in a studio. And it didn't require a degree. It didn't require $60,000 a year, right? And he never got a single gig because he had a degree in it. His degree was the artist that he produced. His degree, if any, was all those Grammys that sit on his, above his fireplace, right? And that piece of paper that people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on in the music business, I'm talking about the music business now, not accounting, not being a doctor, not being a lawyer or an engineer. In the music business, nobody cares about that. That's the honest to God answer. And no school wants to hear some loud mouth saying it, but it's true. And, and I, tell, I tell all the audio engineers at Full Sail and MI and everything else, you better figure out how to go out and get a job, my friend, okay? And I've been working in the music business for 38 years now. I have never asked to see a degree from anybody. And I don't have a degree for, for the record, right? And if I was trying to get in a job in an accounting firm, that would be a big fucking problem. Um, that would be a big problem if I was looking to, to go and get a you know, job as a lawyer or an engineer where those skills, some documentation of those skills might be important. But even in those scenarios, you have to have the networking skills to get yourself in front of somebody to pitch them for a job. And that was the point of it. So that's my clarification. Now, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, you answered it perfectly. Uh, so tell me how Redmond U fits into that. Okay, I'll tell you perfectly. Now Now we're talking more about the music business. And, 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 and part of it requires accepting a premise of mine, which is that once you've made the music, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a producer, whether you're an artist, whether you're a songwriter, right? That's the fun part. That's the release of all that creative stuff that's inside of you. But the second you want it to sell and provide you with a living, now you're entering the music business so that the decisions that happen after you've made the music are as important or perhaps even more important than the making of the music itself. Now, that bums most musicians out. But if you spend enough time doing it, you will reluctantly agree with this grizzly old veteran that that's true whether you like it or not. And so when it comes to the music, learning the music business, I am absolutely positively convinced that there's only one way to do that, and that's by doing it. Reading Don Passman's book, God bless him, great book, will not make you a player in the music business. You'll understand contracts, you'll understand terminology, 
but you might not understand context, where those things apply, when they apply, why it's important, why it's not important, right? And so the Renman U course really kind of, you know, came out of Renman Live show that I've been doing where I thought, well, you know, if the only way to learn the music business is by doing, and you're starting off and you don't really know that much, the next best way to learn the music business would be to hang out with the doers, the folks that have been doing it, okay, and learn from them. And, and I was lucky to have some mentors early in my career, and I never really forgot how important they were to me. And my personality type is I enjoy talking about the music business, always have. And for the better part of my whole career, I've been doing that Red Man live show without cameras. People come into my office, hey, Ryan, can I pick your brain about this? Or what do you think about that? Or, hey, I'm in this situation and I'm having trouble. And, and me sitting there going, you know what? You, you're looking at this all wrong. You're looking in all the wrong places. Here's what's really going on, right? And then they, you'd walk them through and they'd go, oh, fuck. I, I, I never would have looked at it that way. And I said, of course you wouldn't because... The music business is always misdirecting your eye, and things are often not what they appear. So once you've been through it a few times, you tend not to look at it in this linear fashion. You tend to look at situations and start sniffing and going, okay, what's really going on here? And that's what my course is about. It teaches the music business in context, and that's why when I said it's, it's, the, it's an insider's guide to the music business, it's based on all the local knowledge that I've learned from doing that you couldn't possibly learn in a classroom unless you were a class professor was Dr. Dre or Jimmy Iovine or Big Manager X or Agent Y that had actually been through it and dealt with all the nonsensical, the, all the times where the music business just doesn't make sense or when people or artists say, Steve, that's not fair. It doesn't make any sense. And I go... Who? This is not a conversation about what's fair or what makes sense. This is a conversation about what's really happening right now and how we're going to deal with it. Very cool. Um, you did a Creative Live course. I'm also a Creative Live instructor. I was watching some of it. Um, can you explain to my audience the fifth factor? The fifth factor. Fear, insecurity, and paranoia. The building blocks of the music business. Not just the music business. If we're being honest. All of us live in fear of something. I live in fear of failure, you know, that I try to do something and it doesn't happen. All of us are fueled by insecurity if we're being honest with ourselves. Even that prick Donald Trump is insecure about something, okay? Weirdly enough, it's not his hair. We never know. He must be because he keeps wrapping around. If he was okay with it, he'd be bald on top, just like me, okay? But, you know, I digress. We all have insecurity in us, and the music business fetches out that insecurity. Am I good enough? Am I, have I just been lucky, Steve, for 38 years that you've just been lucky and everybody's going to find out you really know nothing? All of that stuff that goes on, right? And the paranoia part of it is, is that when you're trying to do something as difficult as make a living in the music business, which is a one out of a million affair, right? It's very easy in your fear and your insecurity to let it venture into the area of paranoia. People are against me. This guy won't answer my email. Why is this person trying to undercut me Force, you know, or, or, or punting on responsibility? I made a decision that was bad, but now it worked out poorly, so I have to blame it on the next person. Or there's some kind of conspiracy going on, right? 
if you buy that all of us have that, and I believe that everybody has some fear, insecurity, paranoia, the term fit factor was my own twisted take on how might you measure that. In other words, people would go, God, Randy, you never look nervous when you're doing your web show. And I go, no, I'm nervous. I just obviously figured out a way to make it look like I'm nervous. And maybe it's because I smile or I joke or whatever it is, you know. But we all got it. And if you managing your fear, insecurity, and paranoia, if you're going to be successful in the music business where who knows what's a hit till it's a hit, right? It's not like science where two plus two equals four or coding a computer. Oh, you forgot the bracket. That's all. Put the bracket. Now it works. Mitigating, managing, you know, containing your fit factor is important if you're going to succeed. Otherwise, it'll eat you up. So one of your big rails is also against the gatekeepers. And uh, can you talk to me a little bit about like what you see as the music business, how it's changed with uh, the collapse of gatekeepers? I don't know if it's a collapse of the gatekeeper where one disappears, another emerges, right? Um, in years gone by, MTV was the big gatekeeper, right? If they didn't play your video, you were done. The money you spent... The time you put into it, all of that was gone. If they didn't play it, nobody saw it, okay? Today, YouTube makes sure that every video that's been made has a chance to be seen. I mean, I still struggle with why they even have the MTV Awards anymore, right? Because they don't fucking play goddamn videos, okay? And it's habit, right? So that gatekeeper, MTV, certainly nobody's worried about whether they get on MTV anymore. They don't need to. So YouTube has provided a way around that. Um, when, you know, the gatekeeper, if you were living in California, in Los Angeles, you wanted to be on the front window of Tower Records. That was the yardstick of success, or was your name on the side of a building. Tower Records is now done. Kids today don't even know what the fuck Tiger, Tower Records was, right? But it's been replaced by how do you get in the front window of iTunes, or in the front window of Amazon, or in the front window of Spotify, right? So, it, you know, you know, all these bands that are releasing records that are, my music's on iTunes with 5 million other acts, okay? But there's 10 on the front page. Who are the 10 most likely ones to be discovered today? The one on the front page. So that's they become a gatekeeper in a sense, right? But can you really say that that's really one springing up when it's replaced when, the, when those recommendations are tailored to your pre-existing taste? Well, that's what we've been told, okay? But imagine you put out a record and you think it, that your taste, your band is just like Incubus. How come I'm not up there? Because it's not just the algorithm. If you believe that, then you believe in the tooth fairy. There, there's ways to influence those things, and there always have been in the music business, right? So is it tailored to your recommendation? Yeah, but some of these spots are just flat-out relationship stuff. The, you know, Apple can decide who they want to do a special promotion with. That's a people decision. It has a huge impact on whether you get seen and heard. And if the folks out there don't believe it, then ask yourself why your record is sitting on iTunes or Spotify or any of these other digital outlets and you're not selling a million records. I do agree with you that there is lots of things like the placements are done of what, what's on the front of iTunes and stuff like that. But there also is the thing of just as prominent on the front of Spotify is what your friends are commonly listening to 
And if that's a... Let me say, Spotify less of an issue because theirs is more deliver the music service versus sell it, right? But my point is, is that there are millions of acts that could qualify on that. This is kind of like this, mm -hmm. but they aren't showing up on the front page. Yes. I'm not getting a bunch of indie acts on my check this out, Steve. Different if I'm looking at my friends, what they're listening to. Because that's based on here. They checked Steve Rennie's playlist. He was playing the Rolling Stones today. Great. And they put it on Facebook. They put it on Twitter, right? But to your question about the gatekeepers, there's always gatekeepers out there. And forget about the gatekeepers that are the music business gatekeepers, right? That whole notion of gatekeepers, people kind of take it in the most literal sense. you know. And some of it is meant that way. But, but on a bigger level, the gatekeeper is really like an issue, a problem, a situation that you have to work through that you let stop you, right? And so often in the music business, the gatekeeper, all you got to do to find the biggest gatekeeper is look in the mirror. It's you, right? I can't do this. This is not happening. This won't happen. You come up with a million reasons why something can't happen instead of the reasons it can. And so you, you don't do things that are necessary, right? And, and so that's what the fuck the gatekeepers is really about, which is there will be any number of gatekeepers, some institutional, some real, some personal, some situational. And if you're going to succeed in the music business, you need to be able to work your way around those obstacles as you work your way through all your fear, insecurity, and paranoia that are being fueled by these obstacles in your way, and how can I get through it? This is impossible, Steve, to get this club owner to answer my calls. Am I saying the wrong things? And I, I sent a note to a kid today. I said, here's all they want to hear about, man. If you told them I fought, sold 500 tickets at your competitor's club, they'd pick up the phone and call you back. <laughs> if you tell them, hey, I got a great... Dan, can I have a Friday night? They're not going to call you back. But so you got the gatekeeper. There is that guy. How do you get around the gatekeeper? You build an audience somehow. You know. Well, if I can't get a club gig, how am I going to get a gig? Well, their kids doing gigs from their freaking living rooms now. Not not something I would have come up with, but they are. And, and to me, that was somebody working around the gatekeeper of club. If I can't get a club gig, I'll do it at my house. I'll do it in somebody's living room. And I've been to there. There's some great websites and things out there where people are actually doing this. So where five years ago, I would have said, that's fucking bullshit. That's never going to happen. I'm just as opinionated today as I was back then. But in the face of new information or reality, it's actually happening. I'm not one of these deniers. I'm not, not going to deny that you know, a billion people are having some impact on, on our planet and its health. You know? But there are a lot of people, oh, no, no way. Really? Okay. okay. <laughs> to wrap up, where can people go to learn more about what you do and see what you do? Um, I'll give you a couple of places. The, the, if you want to, if you're interested in our course, which you know, just as a brief plug of the course, it's it covers the ten biggest areas of the music business by my reckoning, including one important one that's often overlooked, which is how to get your head, 
your attitude in the right place to do something great in the music business, right? Covers publishing, touring, you know, managers, record labels, publishers, and everything in between. Um, you can go to www.renmanuforuniversity.com and you can check out the course. We have a little webinar there explains all the different ways you could learn the music business. We talk about some of the things we talked about today. What's a what's a the value of a, a music business degree in the music business, where to learn the music business, cost, and all of that stuff. If you're looking for a nice free way to do it, the best place to go is to www.renmanmb.com. Once you get there, you will see all kinds of video clips from, from literally the smartest, most talented, most successful artists and professionals in the music business. The doers, as I like to call them. No theory there. These are all people that their book was experience. You know, they went out and did it. And, and they tell you how they did it. They tell you how they get started. And I think anybody that's, that's really interested in learning about the music business and believes what I said, that the only way to do it is by doing it yourself or learning from the doers, I think you would have to try much harder not to learn something than you would to learn. And, and it's, a, it's a, a, a terrific resource. And then you can check out our Renman Live shows, which, you know, you can see all that information on the website, which go on just about every Wednesday from 10 to 11 o'clock. And we invite all these people into the office to talk. Anybody out there in the world with an Internet connection or a phone can not only watch, they can be a part of it by posting questions that we'll ask during the show. Or for the really, really bold ones, they can pick up the phone and talk to record company presidents, big-time promoters, big-time agents, big-time record producers, and then you don't have to deal with me. You can just ask your question directly of the people that are doing it. I like that. What do you wish you knew when you started out in the music business that you could have known the whole time up till today? I wish I would have realized sooner how little I knew. I think people tend to think that the music business is easier to figure out, and for a long time there, I thought I was smarter than the business and only to come to find out that as I get older and hang out with people that are really freaking doers they spend a lot of time going I don't know about that I really know I, you know they're they undersell what they know whereas when you're young you're always overselling what you know <laughs> it's easier for older guys to say I don't know but you know I'm gonna call some of my buddies and find out oh that's you know what that's a good question I don't fucking know I got a couple guys I think that might, so I'm going to call them and then I'm going to call you back. I don't, young people don't do that. I know, I know, I'm an expert, I got that. And then I sit there and just go, oh, that's so cute, figure it out. But for the really smart ones, I go, here's been my experience. You can step in that pile of dog poo, but I'm pretty sure it's going to stink on both of our feet. But go ahead. And the smart ones go, I'm just going to skip that. Take your word for it, Steve. <laughs> And at some point in my career, I was lucky. I had some mentors where I, I, I had a shorter spell in that I know everything zone because I, they, I was fortunate enough to have people around that actually did that were just patient enough to let me step in a couple of them and go, okay, if we got this figured out now, Steve, you're not really as smart as you think you are, but if you'll actually just sit with us and shut up and keep your eyes open and your ears open, we're going to fast track you here. And I did. Uh, and that was when I started to, to make things happen in the music business, when I accepted that I wasn't nearly as smart as I thought I was.
and that the music business was the business of it was bigger than all of us. That's really good advice. Awesome, dude. Thank you so much for uh, doing this. And I will obviously. Uh This week, I'd like to recommend a movie called Gaspar Noe's Love 3D. Uh, it's a really cool movie from a guy who directed two movies that are pretty uh, abrasive, and this one's a little bit more lighthearted. But uh, I thought it was a fantastic movie that had some great thoughts on what love is and the stupid things we do inside of it. I'd also like to recommend the new Apple TV since it is looking pretty promising. I've been really having a lot of fun fooling around with it. Here's a recommendation from Steve Rennie. There's a book by a guy named Dr. Bob Rotella, uh, R-O-T-E-L-L-A. Bob is a sports psychologist and he wrote a book that every golfer, every serious golfer has called Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And what I want people to do is to go Go to Amazon.com, check out that book, and hopefully they'll buy it and read it. And I've recommended it to everybody from Nate Roos to Brandon Boyd to people in the music business. Most of them, some of those are golfers. But every time you see the word golf, you insert music and you'll have it because it's all about getting your head in the right place to do something where the world's going to tell you you're crazy. They're going to tell you it's never going to happen. What the fuck are you thinking about? Why don't you get a real job? <laughs> okay. And every musician that I've recommend, recommended to has always sent me a note back on Jesus Christ, man. I thought that thing was a totally whack idea. I love this. Sure. Having a great attitude is, is, is the first step to doing something great in the music business. Thanks for listening to Off The Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at Off The Record FM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at offtherecord.fm. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at offtherecord.fm. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.